If you go all the way back to the book of Job, you will see that there is a, a, a time in the book of Job when Bildad, Job's friend, had rebuked Job. And Job, as he's trying to make sense of the situation that he finds himself in, it is a very trying situation. There are a lot of difficult uh, experiences that he's facing. Asked this penetrating question as a result of Bildad's rebuke in Job chapter 9, verse 2. He says this, this highly important question that everyone should be asking. How can a man be in the right before God? How can a man be in the right before God? You see, that is the most important question that anyone can ask. How can we be in the right before God. And there are so many answers that are put forth to answer this question, like we learned last week. And for the, you know, at the risk of repeating myself, I want to just go over those again. Some claim that having a good heart is what makes us right with God. So, the question then is, who has a good heart? In light of the word, the Lord's declaration through the prophet Jeremiah, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? The answer to that seems to be no one. And then you couple that with the Apostle Paul, who says in Romans 3, chapter 12, there is no one who does good. And then you add to that the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 18, when he's asked, when he said there, why do you call me good? There is no one who is good but God alone. You see, Scripture blows up the human notion that our hearts are good, that we are good, that our hearts can win the affection of God. All of these are falsehoods that humanity puts out there so that they can feel better about themselves and feel like they are in the right before God. But let me tell you, this does not bring us into the right before God. So if it's not that, how can a man be in the right before God? If it's not the goodness of our hearts, maybe it's our good works. And this is the default position of most of humanity and the religions that they create. God is, or the gods are, appeased and are satisfied by human works and by our effort. However, Jesus, in response to this idea, which was prevalent in his day, taught in the Sermon on the Mount that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. See, we love to default into our works. And if we're not careful, we consistently do that. And in culture, people are consistently jumping to different things that they think will win them the affection of God. You know, I give to charity. I only use paper straws, you know. But Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now you've got to realize that the average Jew thought that the Pharisees were the pinnacle of meticulous obedience to God's law, to God's word. And here Jesus said, even their works of dutiful compliance fell far short of the standard of God. As we see later on in in Matthew chapter 5, that standard is perfection. 
The definition of exceeds, what it means to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees is given to us by Jesus in Matthew 5, 48 when he said in the same sermon, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Does anyone match up or measure up to that standard? Jesus dismantled the idea that our works could ever raise up to the level of righteousness before God. It is a fool's errand to try to win God's affection by our good works because the standard that we must achieve is perfection. And not just perfection, the perfection of God himself. A standard that no human, no matter how strong you are, no matter how good you are, no matter how unbelievably talented you may think you are, or might actually be, none of us can ever achieve this standard. And Scripture goes to great lengths to tell us that falling or stumbling or disobeying even one point of the law makes us guilty before God, but not just a little bit guilty, completely guilty. James 2, verse 10 tells us, whoever keeps the whole law but fails at in one point, has become guilty of all of it. Meaning, to fail at one point of the law brings upon us the guilt of, of breaking the entirety of it. And there are none among us. And let me just be clear, not one among us, aside from Jesus, not one who has not abandoned at some point or deserted at some point or broken God's law, and therefore we are all in the same boat guilty of disobedience to the law of god guilty of trampling on the holiness of god guilty of exchanging the glory of god's good law and by extension god himself for creation and things of infinitely lesser worth so like the human heart like being a good person law keeping and good works are excluded as a path to righteousness before God because it is impossible for us to measure up to the standard. Which is why Paul can so clearly declare in Galatians 3.11 that no one is made right before God by their obedience to the law because every one of us is too weak to keep it. So being a good person, works of the law, neither of those bring us a satisfactory answer to Job's question, how can a man be in the right before God? But there are others who point to, number three, their religious duties and their religious sacrifices as the foundation for their being right before God. As though Jewish festivals and observances, as though fast days and months in, the, in Islam, as though those wildly difficult pilgrimages to the swamis that are perched in the most difficult locations of far-reaching mountains while their, their followers make their way up to these uh, swamis in these holy expeditions, the people believe that to do these things wins them the favor and the affection of God. But when these are enacted for the purpose of securing the favor of God, they are of no account. And the same is true for us. We don't attend church or tune into this live stream while in our beds in our bathrobes because we hope to win God's favor. We don't pray, we don't give, we don't meditate on Scripture to earn God's love. That takes the good acts 
of God, or the good acts of a human that we do in response to the wonderful grace of Jesus Christ and turns them into a wrong act. We do these things because we love God. We desire God. We desperately want to know more about God. We desperately want to be more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because we know that to know Jesus is the great joy of our souls. But to take these deeds and make them into some sort of mercenary act whereby if I read my Bible, God will bless me. If I read, if I pray this long every single day, God's going to give me, he's going to be in my debt somehow. We, our good works then turn from being something that we do because we love the Lord into an evil act. And we see this in, as, uh, in the Lord's um, discussions or the Lord's word through Isaiah to the Israelites. As the people of Israel increased in their wicked deeds and yet depended on the sacrificial system to maintain their right standing before God. Referring to Israel as Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 1 verse 10 of Isaiah, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. You see, simple acts of ritual without a right heart are, as the Lord will say a few verses later in Isaiah chapter 1, something that his soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Isaiah 1.14 So again, for the second week in a row, we must recognize it that if we are to truly enjoy God, if we are to spend eternity with him in his glorious and fatherly presence, we must be right with him. And this becoming right with God or this being made right with God does not nor can it come by claiming the goodness of our hearts which are deceitful above all things, nor can it come by our performance of good deeds which can never ever ever come anywhere near close to the standard of perfection that is revealed by Jesus nor can right standing before God or being in the right before God ever be secured by our religious devotion and ritual, which when we perform it for the reason of gaining right standing before God is burdensome and hated by the Lord. So now we return to Job's question. How then can a man be made right before God? And good thing we have the New Testament because the New Testament, the whole Bible, is devoted to answering this question. And one of the great texts that we can turn to is the one that we are looking at this morning, the baptism of Jesus. Now this text can be a little bit confusing and easily glossed over as we rush to focus on the practical words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. But in his baptism, we are witness even at this, the very earliest points of Jesus' public ministry to the entirety of Jesus' work of salvation, at the earliest stages, as Jesus sets foot onto the public scene. You see, for many, when we say the word gospel, we are immediately transported to the final week of Jesus' life as he set his face toward Jerusalem and laid down his life for us. 
However, the gospel encompasses the totality of Jesus' life. Everything Jesus did from his birth to his death. And when he cried out on the cross, it is finished. He was referring to all necessary for our salvation. And that stretched back, that all stretched back, even to this very day when Jesus appears upon the scene, walks towards John and says, let me baptize me. And when Jesus approached John to be baptized by him, this was his first step in the fulfillment of all righteousness. So, let's take a look at the gospel that's revealed in Christ's baptism. Look at verse 13. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by him. So then Jesus came from Galilee. This is an indication that this is a later time. This baptism of Jesus is not on the same day as John's withering critique of the state of the Pharisees and Sadducees' hearts. This is on a separate occasion. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, which is no short walk, and the construction of this sentence indicates that Jesus made this trek to John in the wilderness for the specific and express purpose of being baptized by John. Now, If you're reading this correctly, this might raise a question in you, right? Why? Why would Jesus seek the baptism of John? Because if you recall, what was John's baptism a baptism of? It's a baptism of repentance. And repentance is the confession of sin and the turning to the Lord. But Jesus didn't require such a baptism for for himself. Jesus didn't need to repent of anything. Jesus was sinless. So what sin could Jesus confess? John's baptism was a baptism that prepared the way for the Messiah. It provided an opportunity for the Jewish peoples to confess their sin and turn to God in anticipation of the king's arrival. John sought to prepare for the Lord a repentant people. Never did he expect that the Lord that he is preparing the way for would come to him for baptism. Now, there is a lot of speculation about the relationship between Jesus and John growing up. My assumption is that they never met. John the Baptist in the Gospel of John is recorded as saying at this time, during this baptism, he said, in John 1.32, I myself did not know him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. However, we know that John knew, or John must have known, that it was his cousin who was the one. As his mother Elizabeth most likely recounted her experiences with Mary to John as John was growing up. And not only that, but John obviously had some sort of instinct as to the identity and proximity of the Messiah. You remember it, right? We read that John, even when he was in the womb, when he heard the greeting of Mary to Elizabeth, when Mary was still very pregnant with Jesus and Elizabeth was still very pregnant with John, As Mary greeted her, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, who is John, who would later become John the Baptist, leaped for joy, Luke 1, 44. And likewise, on this day, as Jesus arrives 
at John's baptism, when John saw Jesus coming towards him, those instincts of proximity and identity kicked in again. And John once again leapt for joy at the announcement of the coming king. As he said in John 1, 29 to 30, when he saw Jesus approaching, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. This announcement is a clear indication that John knew instinctively that Jesus had no need of his baptism in reference to himself. Jesus himself did not need to be baptized because Jesus is, look at what John said in John 1.29, Jesus is the Lamb of God. Now go back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. When a lamb was offered to God, it had to have been unblemished, unspotted, and perfect. Now there was no such thing as a perfectly perfect unblemished. So they did the best of what they could with what they could. But John saw Jesus coming and said, this is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire system. Jesus wasn't simply the best lamb picked from the pen of some rich landowner. No, Jesus is the perfect lamb that is provided for us by God himself to atone for the sins of the world. And if the lamb that comes, that is offered by God, were imperfect or blemished in any way, it was disqualified as an offering for sacrifice. And John's knowledge of Christ's perfection, John's instinctual knowledge that Jesus has no need for his baptism because Jesus is perfect, leads him to resist Jesus' request for baptism as we see in verse 14. Look at verse 14. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Now, John's efforts here to prevent Jesus from submitting to baptism were, if you look at the wordings uh, in, the, in their languages there, were forceful and energetic. He was forcefully and energetically resisting Jesus' request to be baptized. And listen, you know, just as a side note, this really goes to show how difficult it is for even the best of us to grasp the will of Christ and to submit to the will of Christ. Sometimes God does things that we just can't quite understand. And it's hard for us to submit ourselves to them. Because look, John, according to Jesus, was the greatest man born of a woman up to that point. His whole life was of one of preparation for the coming Messiah. His whole life was dedicated to calling people to repentance And John, even so, John, so focused on repentance as he was, so focused on preparing the way for the coming of the Lord, resists the very first request that is brought to him by Jesus. Now, you can understand, right? John's mindset here. It's one thing to baptize sinners and to call out hypocrisy, but when the perfect Lamb of God approaches the one that John's entire life is dedicated to revealing, and that lamb asks him, an imperfect sinner, to baptize him with a baptism of repentance, it is a surprising and unexpected turn of events. Now, we are, John, as it has been shown, is no stranger to resisting those who come to him for baptism. In our text last week, we see that when the religious leaders came, those who desperately needed to repent, 
but refused to truly do so, when they came to John, they came to him in pretense. They came to him in show. They came hoping to display some sort of humility to watching eyes, but in reality to puff up their own pride and to puff up their own arrogance. And so John refused to baptize them. Instead, he called them a brood of vipers who must truly repent and bear fruit that necessarily arises out of a true and a real repentance. And now Jesus comes to John for baptism. And again, John does not want to do it. And this time, not because Jesus needs to truly repent, but because Jesus does not need to repent because he's sinless and therefore has no need for baptism. So instead, John rightly declares in verse 14, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? See, John knew that he was not qualified for what Jesus had asked of him. It's me who needs to be baptized by you, said John as he looked into the eyes of the king. It's John's clear declaration of the fact that he is not perfect. The preacher of repentance must himself repent because he is sinful as well. And listen, this is true of all preachers. It's true of all Christian leaders. It's true of every single person in the world other than Jesus Christ himself. But don't be too hard on John. He is, like a number of other followers of Jesus, not quite grasping the role and purpose of Christ. And we see people throughout the New Testament who don't quite grasp the mission of Christ on earth, attempting to resist his will and attempting to stop him from performing his role as Messiah. We see this twice, for example, in the life of Peter. At least twice. You remember John 13? Jesus set an example for service among his disciples by washing their feet. And it was Peter, as Jesus was walking around, going around, washing everybody's feet, Jesus got to Peter, and it was Peter who resisted. It was Peter who piped up, you shall never wash my feet. Peter saw such an act as beneath the dignity of Israel's Messiah. But Jesus came to serve, not to be served. And he came to leave this as an example and a legacy for all who would follow him. He has come to serve, not to be served. And in Matthew 16, 21, as Jesus revealed the road that the Messiah must walk, as Jesus displayed to his disciples the cup that he must drink, saying that the Messiah must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. But this, this was all too much for Peter. Such a future was beneath the dignity of Israel's Messiah. And so Peter, the text tells us, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. In like manner to Peter, John understands that a baptism of repentance is beneath the dignity of the Lamb of God. So again, why is this so important to the mission and work of Jesus? John was shocked by the ask. And seriously, the more we read about John... The question arises, have you ever met a Baptist who refuses to baptize as much as John does? He only baptized those who truly repent or who truly needed repentance, and Jesus fit neither criteria. 
Jesus didn't need to repent. Jesus was and Jesus is already fully, completely, truly perfect. But Jesus is not deterred, nor does he rebuke John, but he insists, as we read in verse 15. Jesus insists. He says, it's a, the text says, Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So here's the reason that Jesus gives for his undergoing John's baptism of repentance. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So what does Jesus mean by that? What is going on here? If you look at the Christian calendar and our celebrations and our big highlights, they tend to focus on the ends of Jesus' life, don't they? Our two major celebrations on the Christian calendar, Christmas and Easter, right? At Christmas, we celebrate his entrance into the world, his taking on flesh and coming into the world. And then at Easter, we celebrate his death and his resurrection. Now, both of these are of utmost importance. Both of these are tremendously and wonderfully glorious. However, Jesus lived an entire life in between his birth and his death. And this is very important. It's not just the beginning of Je- and end of Jesus' life that are important, but every single step that Jesus took, every single word, every single deed of his life is of utmost importance because Jesus being our substitute, like we are so fond of reminding everyone, is not limited to his dying on the cross. But even now, as he comes to John for baptism and submits himself to John's baptism, Jesus is acting as our substitute even at the beginning. Jesus, at the outset of his public ministry, identifies himself with the sinners that he has come to save. And this identification is his first step on the road to to Calvary's cross. And Isaiah prophesied this, telling us that Jesus was numbered. He was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus identifies himself with us. At his baptism, Jesus associated himself with us sinners that he came to save, all the while remaining sinless. Remember, Jesus had no need for baptism himself. He was already righteous. And before obeying any of the laws of the Old Testament, Jesus was already perfect. Christ's fulfilling of all righteousness is something that he undertakes for us. You remember Job's question again, how can a man be in the right with God? And you remember Jesus' statement that you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? Let's put those two things together. The only way to be right with God is to be perfect. And the only way to be perfect is if God himself lives that perfect life for us and then applies it to us. And if Christ, and Christ here from the very outset of his public ministry undertakes this perfect life for us in our place on our behalf. Christ voluntarily subjected himself to God's law in order to keep every single point of it on our behalf. And Christ, at his baptism, submitted to it in order to render to the Father a full and complete obedience to his will and to his law. And to fulfill all righteousness here means 
to fulfill every or to obey every jot and tittle of God's law, every single word, every single requirement. You see, Jesus must completely obey every requirement that the Lord handed out to Israel. So in his baptism, as he who had no sin of which to repent, we see that his entire ministry from beginning to end was what we call vicarious. Vicarious is a fancy word for substitutionary. He fulfilled all righteousness in our place and on top of that, he also died in our place. So Jesus lived for us and died for us. And we see this also clearly in the Gospels, that Jesus is relentlessly committed to displaying his obedience to the will of the Father. And this obedience is revealed in two ways. We're going to use some theological terms here. Um, Active obedience, what theologians called active obedience and passive obedience. See, the gospel accounts leading up to the Passion Week or the last week of Christ's earthly life display Christ's, what theologians call Christ's active obedience. His fulfillment, his active obedience is his fulfillment of each and every one of the law's righteous requirements and righteous demands perfectly. In other words, Christ diligently, devotedly, and zealously lived the life of righteousness and perfection that is required if any believer is to be accepted by the Father. And Jesus is the only one who has ever done so. In all that he thought, in all that he did, in all that he said, he obeyed the law perfectly and exactly. And this is something that you and I fail at by the minute. The perfect, active obedience of Christ is what every single one of us who would be in the right with God desperately require. And in order for this perfect obedience of Christ to be applied and credited to our account, we also need the passive obedience of Christ. Now, this word passive can be a little misleading because Christ was fully in control of everything he did at all times. When he set his face toward Jerusalem to go to the cross, it was an active deed. But Christ did at the same time go voluntarily and submit himself to the will of the Father in going to the cross. So this passive obedience of Christ is his willing and voluntary submission to the cross and everything that leads up to it. Christ of his own accord went to the cross to bear the wrath of God and appease God's wrath against sin in the place of sinners that have placed their faith and their trust in Jesus. And Jesus allows it Jesus bears that shame. Jesus bears the humiliation given, shouted out upon him by those he has come to save. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, who at any point could have called the heavens down upon his accusers, who could have opened the ground and swallowed them all, who could have spoken a mere word or shot an intending glance at any of his torturers, any of his insulters, and instantaneously taken their very lives. This Jesus who created the very people that are betraying and crucifying him, submits himself to the process in order to deal with sin and save sinners. And this has been the great joy of Protestants for hundreds and hundreds of years. The great reformer Martin Luther called this the great exchange. 
on the basis of Christ's work, on the basis of Christ's merits, from beginning to end, we are saved. You and I add nothing to the process except the sin that necessitated it. Our salvation is fully and completely secured, fully and completely purchased by Christ. In His death, He cleansed us of sin, of all sin, absorbing the just penalty in and on Himself. And we praise and exalt the Lord for this wonderful work. However, if this was all there is, we would simply be in a neutral state, not sinful, yet not righteous. And this is where Christ's fulfillment of all righteousness comes in. By his meticulous obedience to the will and the law of God and our incorporation into Christ by grace through faith, listen to this, his perfect righteous life is applied to us. We are clothed with a robe of perfect righteousness as a result of Christ's life. So you see, Christ's death wipes the slate clean as our sin is dealt with and taken upon himself and his perfect life is credited to us, meaning that when the Father looks at us who believe, what he sees is the perfection, the sinless perfection of Christ. This past week, just kind of try and illustrate the point. This past week, I read an article about a man who had $77,000 in his bank account. He was a day trader and he decided it was time for him to to invest in oil. And so he spent his day trade money on oil. Little did he know that on that day, something unprecedented would happen. That for the first time, oil would drop into the negatives. And oil dropped down to, I think, minus 39 or minus $40 a barrel. People were paying uh, people to take oil off their hand. And his 77000 plus ended up for some, in, in, somehow, some way, dropping to $9 million in debt. Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine buying some oil stock, going to bed, waking up the next morning, $9 million in debt? Can you imagine that? Our debt that we owe to the Lord is far greater than nine million. The debt that we owe to the Lord is something that none of us could ever repay on our own. And Christ, when he goes to the cross, just imagine your bank account being nine million dollars in debt. Just use this as the, as the example. When Christ goes to the cross and he dies and our sin is dealt with, the debt of our sin is paid there. And all of a sudden the bank account, the debt in the bank account is wiped clean and you are given a zero balance. But not only, see, and this is the great, the wonder of the gospel. Jesus doesn't just leave our accounts at zero, but he lived this perfect righteous life of obedience so that he would deposit everything into our accounts so that when we look at that account, we see an unbelievable balance in our favor, not because of anything we did, but because the Lord, through Jesus Christ, filled up that bank account by his righteousness. Spiritually speaking, Jesus paid our debt, bringing the balance to zero, but not only that, making sure that his righteous life was credited to our account. This is, the fancy word for that is imputation. The righteous life of Christ is credited to our account. It is imputed upon us. 
If you want to sound spiritually fancy, walk around and use the word imputed. And this is why we should never pass too quickly over the phrase, in Christ. When you are reading scripture, when you encounter that phrase in scripture, just stop for a second. Because it is upon true faith and repentance that we ourselves are placed in Christ. And by our virtue of being placed in Christ, we accrue all of those benefits of having uh, our sin dealt with and the righteousness of Christ applied to us. Let's just look at a few texts to help us. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Did you see it? Christ was born under the law. For what reason? For our sake. In order to redeem those who are under the law. With the end result that we receive adoption as children. And how does Christ accomplish such a feat? By securing the perfect righteousness as, that we require and crediting, credited, crediting it to us when we believe. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he, that's God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For whose sake, ours, Christ was made sin at the cross, so that we who are in him, you see that again, that in him, the one who secured perfect righteousness, the perfect righteousness that God has required, in him we might become the righteousness of God. Philippians 3, 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. In him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on Faith. You see, Paul counted everything around him as lost, whether it was his works as a Pharisee, whether it was his ethnic heritage, or anything else he might rest on for righteousness before God. He considered them all absolute trash. The true treasure in Paul's mind, and that this true treasure that keeps finding its way out in everything Paul writes, is being found in Christ, not having or depending on any righteousness that we may strive for by law-keeping, but instead by the righteousness of Christ's perfected life credited to our account by faith. And one more. Romans 5.19 For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. You see, our standing as either a sinner or righteous before God results from who we are in. All who refuse to repent and turn to Jesus for salvation remain in Adam. And as a result, they will, unless they turn to Christ for salvation, suffer the penalty of the unrighteous. Adam's unrighteousness is inherited by all who refuse Christ. Whereas by the obedience of Christ, again, this is his active life of fulfilling God's law, and his passive obedience are, for those in him, what make us righteous as his perfection is applied to us. Being in Christ is amazing. 
beautiful. Don't pass it by as you're reading. And all of this was prophesied by Isaiah in 53, verse 11, when he said that the Messiah would make many to be accounted righteous and that he shall bear their iniquities. Do you see that? He shall make many righteous and he shall bear their iniquities, right? The taking away of sin and the crediting of righteousness too. Even in the Old Testament, we see it. And Jesus insisted and revealed why, moving on, John consented to baptizing Jesus. Look at, or after Jesus insisted and revealed why John consented and baptized Jesus, we see the skies open up in verse 16. Look at. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. See, after Christ came up from the waters of baptism, the Spirit descended on him like a dove. It wasn't an actual dove. It was like a dove, and it rested on Jesus. And this public display of Isaiah, and this is the public display of Isaiah's prophetic word. In Isaiah 61, we see this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. See, Jesus is shown by the descent of the Spirit upon him as the one who is set apart in a special and unique way for this messianic mission of bearing iniquities, and crediting righteousness. It's also the fulfillment of the prophetic word again in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, when Isaiah, the Lord said through Isaiah, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So you see, this descent of the spirit and is coming to rest on Christ, called to mind Old Testament prophecies of Messiah. He has arrived, and on this day, his public ministry began. And at the outset of his public ministry, he is, from his very first minutes, securing the righteousness for us that we so desperately, desperately need. And the Lord blessed the baptism when he spoke from heaven, saying in verse 17, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So a couple of things to note here. At the baptism of Christ, all the persons of the Trinity are present. The Father speaks from heaven, the Son is baptized, and the Spirit anoints the Son for his earthly ministry. And what this tells us is that all the persons in the Godhead are intimately involved in bringing lost sinners home. The fullness of God is at work in securing and saving his people. So as we look at this text, we see that the baptism of Christ actually reveals the wonders of God's love, the wonders of God's commitment to us in saving and bringing us desperate sinners into his family. Jesus was declared from the heavens to be God's beloved son. And Jesus is the only one with the inherent right to call God his father. However, by the obedience of Christ, by the righteousness that is bestowed upon us by him, by our being in him by grace through faith, here is the good news. 
we are granted the same privilege. And the Apostle John, bursting with excitement, wrote as much in the beginning of his gospel when he said, to all who believe, to all who did receive him and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John is bursting with joy and bursting with excitement about that. Amen. Just as the Father delights in the Son, so he delights in all who are in the Son. He delights in all whose guilt have been taken away by grace through faith in Christ. And he elevates us to the highest possible position, that of being in Christ. So again, how can a man be in the right with God? There is only one way. By faith in Christ, who fulfilled all righteousness for us and credits his perfection to our account. And not only that, but who took upon himself the sins of us all, dealing with their penalty, dealing with their consequence. You see, in Christ, when we are in Christ, our sin is paid for. Our sin is taken away. And perfect righteousness is gifted to us. And in this way, we are considered perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Not by anything in us, not by anything we have done, but completely, totally, and fully by the gracious work of Christ for us, on our behalf, in our place, as a substitute for us from the first day he stepped into public ministry to his ascension. The baptism of Jesus is the moment we are introduced to his intention. We are shown the reason he took on flesh in the first place to accomplish everything necessary for our salvation in fulfilling all righteousness. Now, this ought to help you in your assurance of salvation. When you fall into sin, remember that Christ has borne that sin on the cross and his perfect righteousness has been credited to you. So instead of allowing the enemy to crush you and to grind you into some sort of dust and powder of, of shame and, and whatnot, run to the Lord. Run to the Lord in repentance and keep serving him. If you hate your sin, if you hate the fact that you fall into sin, just keep running to the Lord in full assurance that your account has been credited the righteousness of Christ. And so for this, all praise, honor, and glory are due to Christ. And if you have repented of your sin and turned to him in faith, Colossians 3 tells us, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And because of this close identification with Christ, the same verdict, the same blessing that is pronounced upon Christ at his baptism will be pronounced upon all who are hidden in Christ. You are God's beloved child with whom he is well pleased. Is there any higher honor? So why did Christ come? Why did Christ insist to be on being baptized by John? To fulfill all righteousness, not for himself, not for his own sake, but for the sake of every sinful person who would come to him. And if you Hope to be right before the Lord when all is said and done. 
If you would hope to hear the blessed words, in you I am well pleased, there is only one way. By grace, through faith, in Christ. And if you haven't accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior by grace through faith, the offer is held out to you right now. Today is the day of salvation. Would you flee to him for all of the wonderful benefits that have been secured for those who believe by Jesus Christ? Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you and praise you for our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who took it upon himself to take on flesh. And he came here and subjected himself to the law. He was numbered among the transgressors. He was numbered among us for the express purpose of both bearing our sins and accounting us as righteous. And I'm so grateful and I'm so thankful and we are so in awe of the fact that those of us who are in Christ by grace through faith will one day hear those precious, precious words as we are also a part of your family. In you I am well pleased. You are my beloved child. I long for that day. We long for that day and we thank you that it has been secured for us by our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you in his name. Amen.